Our scripture reading this morning is going to be found in the book of James. You're not surprised, are you? Chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Jeremy and Holly, thank you so much for doing that song. That was written by one of my students back at Trinity. He's a, he's a country singer, in case you're wondering. And I love that song. It's, it's so much like this passage in James. And, and for many of us who are following this, um, it might even help us to understand one thing that's baffling everybody about the NCAA basketball tournament. I'm not sure James was writing about that, but it, I think it applies. And that we, how, do you, how do you figure this thing out, that uh, players who are third and fourth level recruits at a little school like Mercer University, who would never even be able to go onto the same basketball court with, at Duke University, can then in a tournament beat them? It's, it's, and I think a part of it is this matter of, um, on one side, a person doing everything to be the star, and the other side, people who are willing to give up some of your stardom to play in team under the leadership of a coach. I, I think James talks about that. He may not have known it, but I, I think he, he does. See if you can find it out as we stand, because we are going to be hearing the word of our Father. James chapter 3 will begin with verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such Wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And this is the Word of God. You may be seated. I was reading that text this week and thought of so many things, but one of the things I thought about was a chapel that I once attended back when I was in, in Chicago at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. It, it was a chapel in which one of our students who came from French-speaking West Africa told about how he had come to faith in Jesus. So it, we had it written. So here's a, a part of what he had to say. So you can sit back and find a bit of popcorn and listen to his story. He said, we, we often talked about finding the good life in my village in West Africa. Uh, I grew up thinking I would find it if I could someday become the leader of my extended family, of my clan. I would dream of furthering the amount of land that we had, of having more cattle than my family had ever possessed, of becoming one of the village elders, and then of passing all of this down uh, with my family name more prestigious than it had ever been. But then one day, I realized that my own brothers were dreaming the same thing. 
And this put us in competition with one another. And I saw that my friends in the village were longing for the same land and for the very same positions. And this put us into conflict with one another. And I became very disillusioned. I recognized that what I called my pursuit to bring honor to my family was really my pursuit of bringing honor to myself. And I knew that there had to be more to live for than this. He went on. So now I have lived in the United States for seven years. I think that people's quests for the good life is more honest here than in my village. Uh, People here do not try to hide their personal pursuits behind a veil of furthering the name of their extended family. Instead, they talk directly of doing things for themselves here in the United States. As an undergraduate, I so often met people who believed that they would find the good life if they achieved something, if only they possessed something, or if they experienced something. It seemed to me to be all about finding something for self. But I believe people here also will eventually find out that there must be more to live for than self. And I think that here they will find out that this pursuit is as disillusioning as it was for me in my village. That testimony came to my mind when I read this text this week. Uh, James uh, was writing to a group of people, church people, who came from a a, a culture and a time very different from our own and very different from my my students back there who had come from a tribal community in, in West Africa. And yet I'm telling you, I think we can all understand one another. As I told his story, do you resonate with it, trying to find out how I really can find a way to life and thinking, ah, Uh, I hope I can find it by doing this, by by experiencing this thing, and if I don't, then I'm not going to find life. And many times even going to church, hoping that God will give us that thing that we most want that's going to give us life. Uh, I, I really think that my student would have understood James, and James would have understood him, because when James writes this letter, he turns to a church in which people were trying to find life, but it was all by self centered pursuits. Who is wise, he says, an understanding among you. And he was writing to the leaders of the church. But, but in spite of the fact that they were leaders of the church, their lives had become self-centered and self-directed. They wanted people to notice them. They always wanted to be the one up front. This is really convicting for the pastor who's up preaching on a Sunday morning. You, you've got to see that, especially with a big screen sometimes back here with my picture on it. But th- they would have liked that. They would have liked that a lot. But that self-centered kind of leadership right there in the church had not been healthy for the church at all. It had been devastating. And and all the language that we're going to be seeing in the coming verses, we'll talk about it in this week's text, it had led to disorder, and the word is chaos, and it led right within the church to the evil practice happening as people were all pursuing their own ways. And, and as you go on and read later, you're going to find out that the church and the business meetings, the people were fighting with one another, quarreling with one another. And James looked at that and he, he heard that this was happening among the church people he loved. And he was concerned. Uh, I, I'm telling you, it was ugly. And it made me think about a statement that's been passed down through the history of the church. I'll put it up here. I think it's important for us to see. 
that it's in vain does a despicable church seek to commend a beautiful Christ. James is saying this kind of way of self-centered way of life that puts everyone against one another. This isn't what Jesus died to do. He said it's got to change. And in his usual James-like way, he takes this thing on directly and firmly. It's, it's in that context you see it. So who, who really is wise and understanding among you? Okay, let him show it by, by a good life, yes. But that good life is, and notice it carefully, deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And then, then what he does in verses 14 to 18 is so brilliant. It's, very, it's a very Jewish way of writing. He says that really, no matter what culture you are in, whether you grew up in a tribe in West Africa, whether you're way back here in James' day where these people were scattered into all these different cities, or whether you're in 21st century Southern California, he said the way that most of us try to pursue the good life is one of two paths. Both of them claim to be wisdom. The way that you really find the good life, he said that one of them isn't wisdom at all. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look at those two ways of looking at it. And I think you're going to see that the first one is one that you're tugged toward. But the second one is the one that we are committed to when we come to church. And that that I pray is going to be true of us. So the first one, I've called it the good life according to the world. He just talks about this one path of wisdom. The way the world tells us, here's how you can really live. And the main trait of it is that everybody is thinking, I can find the good life when I do something for myself, when I'm self-actualized, when, when it's all about me. And James says in verse 16, let me t- just tell you right up front where this is going to end. Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there what you're going to find is not peace or life. You're going to find disorder and every evil practice. Now, if you look at verses 14 and 16, I don't know if you have your Bible there in front of you you'll see there are two words that are used twice. The very same word both times. And here they are. They're translated usually bitter envy and selfish ambition. Both of them all about self. And then in between, in case we happen to miss it, he uses words that are translated either boasting or arrogance. So so just think about what he's getting at, he said. The problem here, if you're not quite experiencing all that you should, either in your church or in your personal life, is that the very place you think you're going to find life is not where you're going to find it. That is just looking inside yourself. Bitter envy. It means that sort of rigid possessiveness that makes it where you say, this is what I like, this is my place, and often makes us very, very jealous if anybody kind of steps in you know, to our turf especially if it's a very gifted and and talented person, this person can never rejoice when somebody else is getting ahead in the family or in the workplace or at the church. And he says that leads to the second thing. Whenever there is that that bitter envy, it leads to selfish ambition. Just got to push ourselves ahead and let everybody else know who I am and what, what I have done. That word translated selfish ambition is really an interesting one. It, it's it usually was used in the context of somebody campaigning for a political office. Can you imagine going to a dinner or to a meeting where everybody there 
is campaigning for the office and the very same political office. Can you just imagine what's going to happen? Everybody is going to try to think, I've got to be able to tell them what I have done. I've got to let them tell, tell them what I think. I've got to get them to vote for me. But the problem is that person that you're trying to get to do it is trying to get you to vote for them. I'm telling you, it's not going to be a happy situation here. And, and that's what James is saying takes place. And he says, listen to me, uh, to his church people, and the same thing I want to pass on to you. This is the way that the, um, the world in general is going to approach how you get ahead and, and how you find what he calls here the good life. And then in verse 15, it is, it is so profound. He uses three words that tell us where this thing leads. And the three words are, it's earthly, it's natural, and it's demonic. It's, it's earthly. It's not really, that's not really a bad term, usually. But what it means is there's no reference to God. Pretty much James says what I think you know. That if we live our lives without reference to God, that, that means we know we don't have anybody to answer to. Uh, we have no one that we fall down on our knees before. And if we live life without reference to God, then what's going to happen is, I mean, I understand it well. We've got to say, well, then if I'm going to find life, I've got to go after that myself. I mean, who else is going to do it? Which brought him to the second term that uh, it, sometimes it's, it's translated differently, but I think the best way to translate it, it's natural. It's just the way you and I as human beings are going to be pushed. Our natural tendency is in that direction. After all, if you and I live in a world where, where most of our world is living without reference to God and saying, this is how you find life. The advertisements all say you've got to buy this in order to find life. Uh, when we go for counseling and we're not really at peace, you've got to do something for yourself. Then what's going to happen is you and I, living in this world, we're going to naturally think that's where I find it, right? Do, do you see it? The Apostle Paul would call that the pattern of the world. And he would say, we've always got to beware of it. Because our own natural fallen tendencies are going to want to go in that direction. Go in the direction of thinking, oh man, if I, if I really pursue it myself, if it's more centered on me, if I get that thing, then, then I can really live. So the natural trajectory, the tendencies of all of our lives are to put ourselves at the center. So, but we can understand it. We say, yes, if it's earthly. It's without reference to God. It's a natural tendency for those who, of us who live in the earth to be pushed that way. But then, this is where James grabs us by the collar. And he says, but it's demonic. It's a graphic term. And he meant, when you and I live for ourselves... And our lives are focused around ourselves. What that will do is increasingly carry us away from God and from real life. That it promises so much. You've got to experience this. You've got to do this. But it will devastate your soul. It will rob you of your joy. It will keep you from deep, meaningful relationships with other people. If everybody is pursuing their own ways... It will be destructive. And James just pounds it home in verse 16. Listen, he says, that will not bring a church that's at peace. That will not bring a life that is filled with the Hebrew word shalom. You know, the joy, the life that God made for us. He says it's going to lead to, and the two terms are disorder, chaos. Everybody kind of turned against one another. Everybody trying to get ahead. And he said eventually it will lead to all sorts of evil practice because we're just going to do anything we can to get ahead. Because after all, it's all about me. 
Now, I was trying to think, I knew I would be talking to you about this today, and I thought, how do I talk about this without this just going over our heads so that we would really come home? So I called up my good friend, Jamie Rankin, who's there at Princeton University, and I said, Jamie, I need a good illustration. What, what kind of community have, can you think of that I might be able to talk to them about? What kind of community would it be where you're there, where everybody is sort of focused on self and hoping everybody else will notice them and let them know all that they have done and uh, why, why they're important? And it was, it was interesting when I say it. The phone went just dead for about 10 seconds. And then he said to me, as only a friend could say, you must be kidding. You need an illustration for that? He said, when you just talk about this to anybody who's alive, all of us are going to say, I've been in that place. I know what you're talking about. That's what, that's what he said. They're all going to say that. And sometimes, if we're honest enough, we, we cause the problem sometimes. He said, there's no university faculty in the United States that doesn't understand this. Where everybody's there, I hope I can let them know what I've just written. I hope I can let them know what I've just done. Thinking, don't they know my department is the one that really has all this? There's, none, there's no business setting, those of us in business, that, that you've ever been in when people come and you just hope, hope I can let them know what we're doing. Even when you get with, with large church senior pastors, I've got to tell them that we had, yes, I know it only said we had this many, but we had 10 billion people in church. And it's, you know, you're always into those kind of There's nobody who's ever gone to a family reunion who doesn't understand this, right? Or, or to a class reunion. And yet when you get in just imagining being in that setting where everybody's just there and trying to say, it's, it, I've got to let them know all about me. Can you imagine how terrible that kind of thing is? It is awful, James says. Think of it, a gathering in which everybody is just waiting for the other person to notice him. Nobody welcoming anybody else. Everybody complaining about how awful this party is because we're not being able to do what we want to do. It's what James says, it's demonic, it, it is hellish. It's what C.S. Lewis wrote about in his incredible book, The Great Divorce. Do you know that book? It, it, it's uh, people in hell are given the opportunity to take a bus ride to heaven. So you, everybody would think, well, of course they'll all want to go. But Lewis is just so insightful about this thing. So, so they all get up to heaven, but, but heaven isn't heaven for them because they're in hell because life has become all about them anyway. And when you go to heaven, only one person is in charge and they don't like that. And so because in those places it still is all about me, people are turning away from one another and they're growing more and more distant from one another. So that the very thing we are made for, for deep relationship, becomes impossible when we live this way. All right. You're going to be surprised I put this up here. It's a song by Kanye West, the hip-hop rapper. It's called The Good Life. Um, I'm not going to rap because it would be bizarre. And I, I had to sanitize the text, as, as you know. Uh, but I've got to show you some of the lines that I, I, I think really get us there. He said, like we always do at this time, I go for mine. I got to shine. Now throw your hands up in the sky. I go for mine. I got to shine. Now, welcome to the good life. Whether you broke or rich, you got to get biz. Having money's the everything that having it is. See, this is what James is getting at. 
Uh, the thought that if I can have this, if I can do this, I'm the one at the center, I'm the successful one, haven't you noticed it, is going to lead to a life that, where it's just chaotic when everybody's pursuing that. It's what the, that book, The Wolf of Wall Street, was getting at too. Uh, that if you have a place where, where you have dynamic people saying, I know how I can get ahead, and if you get on the, on the train with me, you're going to get there too, leads to just utter evil and disaster. Um, now, okay, here comes, here comes the hard part. James was not writing to hip-hop rappers or to Wall Street. He was writing to the church. He was writing to people like us. And what he says is, because it's earthly and because it's natural to us, that this matter of self-centeredness can seep into the church so, evil, so easily, we can even talk about it in ways that sound spiritual, Oh, this is why I've noticed this. But he says this sort of demonic way of self-centered living can get a foothold in the church and even be viewed as Christian. And he said it's going to be absolutely destructive. So, so once again, I've got to think about it. Can you envision a church where everybody who comes, comes for what I can get out of it and thinking I've, I'd better make sure that I enjoy it there. It's all about me. It's going to lead to us being divided, isn't it? It's going to be a place where we say, oh, if church is all about what I enjoy and you enjoy, then, hey, if you like, well, you can take anything. you like country western music, you, we go to this service. And if you like hip-hop music, Waybright won't be doing it, but you'll have to go over to this, you'll have to go over to this service. If you like reggae, you see what's going to happen? And even when you get into it, I didn't really like that as well as I thought it should be. Think about coming into church like that. You walk in the church and you expect everybody to be the ones who greet you and welcome you and why aren't they reaching out to me? It's all, and then you're already coming in and you take a seat and you're already just a little bit agitated. And then, then the music starts. And uh, then you say, well, okay, the, that hymn was okay. But that next one, this is the 9 o'clock service. That, that song should be in, in, the, in the other service, not, not in this one. Or if you come to the 11 o'clock service, that hymn, what is that doing in our service? Only those people go to the 9 o'clock service like that sort of thing. You're getting more and more agitated. And then the choir gets up to sing. And you think, why does that choir sing more than they do? They used to sing more often than they do. And right next to you is somebody who says, why does that choir singing as often as it does? I should be the one singing. Why am I not doing more? This isn't really worship. And then up gets the preacher to preach. Ah, that guy, he only can communicate to old 50-year-old-plus white guys. He doesn't speak my kind of language. That church, it, it must be more for my kids than for me. It isn't speaking to my generation, that's for sure. And you feel what happens. Everything that happens makes you feel more and more frustrated. Every time it happens, you sit there and say, and it, it, it robs you of your joy of being together with other people who, who have fallen upon the grace of God and found Him and know Jesus as their Lord. It robs you us of our very ability to worship the God who sent His one and only Son. What, what, what happens is it becomes all about me, and if I don't enjoy it, it's no good. When really, worship is all about Him. And James says this isn't going to glorify God. God's just made us this way. We, we don't find the good life when we have everything flow toward us. Jeremiah took this up in, in Jeremiah chapter 2, and he said God flows His living fresh water into our lives, and it's supposed to come into our lives and flow through us. 
into bringing good news and blessing to others, to other people. And James takes this up too. You flow through us to bring blessing, to, to bring the gospel of Jesus through our witness and the love of Jesus through our lives. That's what's supposed to be able to happen. But Jeremiah would say, you guys have ceased being wellsprings of, of life and of living water. You have become cisterns. And they've just become cracked. In other words, water that's supposed to flow gets just sitting there. Do you know what happens when water just sits there? I, I, have, I have a picture. I picked out the worst one I could find. This is what happened. My, my uncle, one of my uncles, was a landscape architect back in West Virginia, and he built a ponds for the tourist industry. And one time he took me to a pond just like this, and he said, I want to show you a failure. And the failure is that it had plenty of opportunity for water to come in, so it filled out, but it didn't have sufficient opportunity for outflow of the water, so the water sat there and it looked like this. It, this is called a dead pond. Now, there's life there. <laughs> but, you know, that algae and the sand fleas and flies and, and the stench that is there. I'm, I'm just telling you this. You're, you're not going to want to take a bath in that pond, are you? You're not going to want to drink water out of that pond. And I doubt there are any fish in that pond. That's not the way God made us to live. God made us in his image for, for him to flow into us and then through us. Not everything centering on us, but really us centering on him and allowing him then to do his life and his work through us so that it should look more like this second picture. I picked up one of the best ones that I could. That's more what our church should look like. I see God doing this in us. That's more what your and my life should look like. Uh, bringing the, the hope of the gospel, bringing the healing, the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we gather in this place uh, to allow his word to come into us and then we go to be sent. But it, see, it, it, we gather because he is there and he flows into our lives and through us. But the wisdom of the world says, no, just, just bring it in. Next time come in for more for yourself. And, and James says, no, no, no. That will lead to disorder and to chaos. It's the wisdom of this world. It's the good life according to the world. And it isn't a good life at all. So, so what is the good life? Brings me to my second point. The good life according to God. And, and its main trait is going to be putting God at the center. It's, first of all, he'll say in verse 17, pure. Uh, which is a word for focusing upon God with nothing diluting that, that presence of God. So the good life according to God is putting God at the center and he says the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Then it's peace loving and he goes on with something I'll show you so beautifully in, in just a moment. Now, I want you to know that the world, even though the world is, is always pushed toward people of the world who, who have no reference to God, uh, toward saying do something for yourself and that's where you'll find life, still... People are made in God's image and have good insights into so many things. There is a longing in our world, even for people who don't know God at all, a longing for our lives mattering and flowing out to others and being in a community where not everybody just cares for self. And so I find it in so many places in our society. Do you, do you remember that movie a few years ago, A Pay It Forward? That longing for those small acts of kindness that one person does really to flow out into making a difference. I, I see that. Long. Do, do you remember uh, John F. Kennedy's spe speech? Powerful. Uh, ask not what your country can do for you. Rather, 
Ask what you can do for your country. You see, it's that longing to have our lives actually make a difference uh, out in the world. And then as I was looking into this, I saw all of these motivational kinds of uh, uh, posters that called us to to a selfless kind of life. My favorite one was this one. Uh, Don't you love her already? Uh, She's one of the high school students here at at Lake. But But I love the way it's put. So here, a good life is when you assume nothing. Do more, need less, smile often, dream big, laugh a lot, and realize how blessed you are. Now, you can read that, and it's exactly what James is talking about, about the wisdom that comes from above. But I'm just going to tell you this. No matter how much our world may long for it, the way of the world and our own natural tendencies are so strong that one day we'll have this deep tendency, I've got to have something where I'm just not living for myself but reaching out, but we'll snap right back. I call it the rubber band principle. We'll stretch it out. The moment we turn our eyes away, it'll stretch back. I believe that the only way to begin living this life of shalom, which is God's water flowing through us and out into the world, is for those of us who have heard the good news to understand who God is we see ourselves and we know that we have fallen short. Do you see that? And that I need forgiveness for the things in my life that are wrong. I'm not ready to meet a holy God. And so, so I turn to Him and He says, I love you with an everlasting love. I have found a way to forgive you and to come into your life. I came through my Son who gave His life, who never sinned and gave His life in your place. Uh, so that the justice necessary for your sins is dealt with. And you can be declared right with me, and I can come into you. It's this good news, right? Every week I think I I get there. It's good news. We hear that, and we fall on our knees and say, Lord, out of gratitude for your grace, here I am. We receive his forgiveness. We give our lives to him. And as we gather here week by week, we remember it again. And say, my life cannot be about myself because that self fell short of the glory of God. But he has given me the opportunity to live through a life surrendered to him. And he gives his spirit to me and begins, begins to empower us to turn out of our self-centered ways. And into ways that really reflect the ways and glory of God. See, this is what James was trying to get at. And what I see him doing here, and and really it's almost un-Jamesian. James doesn't usually write poetry. It's more like he grabs us by the collar and shakes us, right? But in verse 17, one of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible, James himself tries to say, I've got to let my church people know how beautiful a life is where we're all reaching out to one another. We're all looking out for those in distress in this world. We're all not self-centered, but other-centered, just as Jesus was. And he, he writes a beautiful poem, and he says, okay, what is this life like? It's first of all pure. It's one that is purely and wholly devoted to the first commandment. Nothing in the place of God. Myself, I'm not going to dilute the fact that God is the one that has to be praised and honored. And when God is at the center, it's going to flow out. And and then his poem, it, it has three words that start with the same letter. Seven words that he uses. And then two at the end that start with the same letter. And they have the same kind of rhythm. It's just really, you'd have to read it in Greek, but it would... Some of you would like it. And then at the very 
middle, there are two words that he says, this is what it's going to look like. It's going to be full of mercy and full of good fruit. Full of mercy. So let's look at this just really quickly. A description of a life and of a church and of a community where God is at the center. It will be peace-loving, he says, which means never angling for a fight. doesn't feel like it has to win the battle. doesn't have to be aggressive because it's considerate, this second word, a word that meant gentle. And it meant the willingness to meet other people halfway. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Do you meet a person that hasn't gotten so entrenched that as you're talking, they're already thinking about how they're going to argue against you? But a person who really listens to what you have to say and then responds meaningfully to you. This this person is not one of those who just won't budge. This one seeks to, to listen and to understand so that he says it's even in a sense submissive, but not weakly submissive. What that word really means is, he says, it's open to reason. A person, no matter how old we may get to be, who is ready to be approached and knows that when we listen to others, things can become more than if we just go our own stubborn ways. And that's where he said, and what it's going to flow out into is full of mercy and full of good fruit, showing the ways of God, and then back again, because it's, it's never partial. One of James's favorite words, it, 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 that, it doesn't say one person is more welcome than another. It sees all people as important because he says it is sincere. What, what will our church look like? And I see God doing this among us, don't you? But what will our church look like if all of us, each time we come, gather to say, Lord, we want to put you at the center and have your life flow out into others? I, I think when we come to church, we're not going to come saying, will anybody notice me? But we're going to come and have eyes open to see who's here. Is there somebody alone? Is there somebody weeping? And that no matter how hard a week you've had, you'll find some joy in extending yourself for a few moments and bringing some healing balm and blessing to others. All of us reaching out to one another, a whole community where it's in our DNA to, to care about those who are there. I was talking about this with one of my pastor friends. He laughed at me. He said, well, your church is going to be a place when they leave church, they're going to say, no, you go first. No, 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 you go first. No, 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 you go first. <laughs> and I said, well, that would be better than all of this just jamming through, you know, elbows flying. But, but I, I do think it's going to be that. I think it's going to be that whenever, whenever we sing together, if, if it's about the gospel, it's about Jesus, about what he's done in our lives, about who he is, we're just going to get our voices together and sing together. And whenever some of these great texts, and this morning some of these great texts of the songs that we did are put up there on the screen, I just was worshiping, thanking God for, the, for who he is and for his grace toward us. James was, it says it's going to be a beautiful place. And I think our lives also will bring beauty to the communities that we are in. Thank your workplace will be very, very different if you're always trying to extend yourself, be a blessing to those who are there because of what Jesus has done for you. And your family too. And your family too. And, and this is what James was trying to find a way. He thought, how can I beautifully communicate this, writing this incredible poetry, describing the beauty of a community with God at the center? I tried to do the same. What is it like? It's pure. Not of self 
loving God with all its might, loving peace, making peace, never angling for a fight, and it's gentle, never stubborn, meeting people halfway, for it listens, it reasons, doesn't have to rule the day, loving mercy, it forgives, lifting up those in distress, never partial, nor fixated on its personal success. No hypocrisy, no acting, no deception, no sham for its single motivation is to glorify the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. That's what brings us here. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We'll gather just saying, worthy are you, O Lamb, for you were slain and with your blood you bought us. With your blood you bought us, you purchased us persons from every background and who come from every tribe and language and people and nations. And when the Jesus who is willing to purchase us with his blood is the center of your life and my life, and is the center of our church, then there can be no selfish ambition. There can be no envy. There can be no arrogance. For we are all just so humbly grateful for what He's done for us and that we can even be a part of His church. That our worship is absolutely transformed. This this is what James envisioned. This is a vision of the beauty of the church. Surrendered to the beautiful Christ. So James in this profound text says that nothing will render this church, which is to bear the name and to glorify the name of Jesus, nothing will render it more despicable in the eyes of the world than a hellish, self-centered, envious focus toward did I like it and it's all about me. And nothing will contribute more to the beauty of the church and to our ability to declare Christ to this world then again and again humbly falling upon the grace of God and then allowing the love and mercy of God to flow through us. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let us show it by a good life. A good life that does good deeds. Deeds done in a humility that comes from God's wisdom. May it be to His glory. Amen. Amen. May it be.